So we left off on verse 9, right? Uh, we left off, uh, we finished verse 8 and we talked about the greatest test. The last thing that we mentioned was the greatest test that anyone can face being the test of the death of the Prophet them. And then we came into uh, verse number 9. So verse number 9 says, يَا لَائِمِي فِي الْهَوَى نَعُثْرِي مَعْذِرَةً مِنِّي إِلَيْكَ وَلَوْ أَنْصَفْتَ لَمْ تَلُمِي Which means, you who blame me for this chaste love, I seek your pardon. Yet had you judged fairly, you would not have blamed me at all. You who blame me for this chaste love, I seek your pardon. Yet had you judged fairly, you would not blame me at all. So the idea here, we have this accusation and so on and so forth, and the person is saying, in the last one, they, they acknowledge that yes, they have this problem. They're in love with the Prophet ﷺ. And then so now they're addressing the accuser and saying, you blame me for this love that I have, but if you judged fairly, you'd realize that this love is not something that is blameworthy. And so, uh, chaste here um, could also be translated as chaste love, but you could also be translated in a different way. Um, it could also be uh, an attribution to a people in Yemen. So there was a people in Yemen that were known that their love would reach to the level of death. So this could mean either chaste love in the verse, or it could mean this love that leads to death. You know, you're blaming me for this love that's so, so deep that it leads to death. But had you been just, you wouldn't blame me. So love is one of the deepest and most important natural emotions that Islam gives us, or that Allah has given us. And one of the important things that we may have mentioned before to recall always is that uh, Allah has given us any number of different emotions. And so, especially when it's something that is so central to our human experience, the way love is, then we know that Allah has given us this emotion for a reason uh, and it has to be put in the right places. So not only has Islam given us the law, this, Allah has not only given us the emotion of love, but He's also given us guidance as to where that love should be placed. Um, of course, the most primary love that we should have as human beings is a love for our Creator. This is the first one. Uh, and the, the love comes out of gratitude, it comes out of any number of other emotions, but it's a love that is um, about Allah. And the second type of love that's very primary to our, our belief and our, our lives as, believe, as, as Muslims is the love of the Prophet وسلم, which we're here talking about, obviously. Uh, a third type of love that's very central to the experience of faith for Muslims is love for the believers. That it's, it's very, very essential that the Muslim has love for the believers. Uh, and it's, it's, it's you know, not always the easiest thing to do. Sometimes you face challenges um, or difficulties in, in, that, in that realm, but it is still an amazing experience. And, and oftentimes we're exposed to, to things in that realm that we wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. And, and, it's, and it's something that's really hard to explain. But someone who's actually deeply loved someone else for the sake of Allah uh, can understand that this is it's a special emotion. Um, so this is number three. Number four, which is obviously very common as well, is the love that exists between spouses. That human beings in the 
vast, vast majority, you know, we're created to be attracted to the opposite gender. And so there is a place to put that and there's a place to not put that. And the place to not put it is in a relationship that's not acceptable, but the place to put it then is in a relationship that's bound by the guidelines of faith. So Allah has given us means for expressing these emotions. And when we have the means to express the emotion, then the emotion has to be embraced. Uh, if, if we can no longer love, uh, it affects so many different areas of our lives. So this is one of the things from the verse. Uh, not, so not only is it not blameworthy, when love, so he's saying, you're blaming me for this love, but this love is not blameworthy. So not only is this love that he has for the Prophet them not blameworthy, it's actually part of the sunnah to be able to love. You have to be able to do that. We can we can actually say that the part of the sunnah is to be able to love others, and that the Prophet sallallahu was uh, this is something that he did. Uh, so you can blame, you can look, and you can blame. But and, and the other thing is, anyone who knows the Messenger of Allah sallallahu knows that it's not possible to blame someone for loving him because it's absolutely in the right place. The love for the Prophet sallallahu is a love that's in the right place. It's a love that is deserving, it's a love that's appropriate, it's a love that should be happening. And so it's a love that's very, very important. Uh, and you see this, of course, with Muslims. And it's a great example that we see amongst Muslims. You know, some families, you go into them, and you find out that every son in the family is named Muhammad. It's just a different Muhammad. One is Muhammad Aziz, and the other one is Muhammad Salim, and the other one is Muhammad, uh, who else? <laughs> Muhammad. There's Muhammad Tariq and there's Muhammad Idris and there's Muhammad, there's all these Muhammads. And that's a tradition you see in a lot of Muslim lands, um, that, that that's uh, it's something that people do out of their love for the Prophet. Another example of that is that people will name their children Abdullah or Abdurrahman out of love for the Prophet and love of Allah. Because the Prophet them instructed that the best of names are Abdullah and Abdurrahman. So you'll see, uh, for example, like uh, Umar ibn Khattab named more than one of his sons Abdullah because he wants to use the best name that he can use. Uh, so you'll see this in other families and then you'll also see the opposite. So I know one brother, mashallah, he was really scared actually to name his son Muhammad. We asked him why. And his big issue was like, if I name this child Muhammad, eventually you're going to get upset with your child. <laughs> it's not really possible that you're going to live a life where you never get upset at your child. And if you name your child Muhammad and you get upset at your child, then at some point you're going to yell the name Muhammad. And he's like, I don't want to be in that situation. But at the same time, I want to name my child Muhammad, so I'm stuck. And I think he chose to name his child Muhammad. So may Allah make him and the child from the righteous, inshallah. I mean, so you see this idea of love being put in the right place and love of the Prophet being something that has um, a lot of precedent in Islamic history. Verse 10 says, uh, Verse 10 says, uh, uh, so he says that May you be spared my state I cannot hide my secret from my detractors My sickness will not leave me So you know, now that the 
the interrogation is over and the admission is there and yes I'm in love with this I'm in love with the Prophet them, and I miss him and I wish I could be with him and all of these kind of things the next thing is may you be spared my state you know I don't wish this for you <laughs> of course this is in, in, in some ways you do wish this for someone else if someone has a deep love for the Prophet then you would wish that for someone else but this is in, you know, in the context of, of, of the love language that's being used in the beginning of the poem is you, know, you don't wish this on someone else it's an expression of the seriousness of, uh, of, the, of the love itself so he gives this full admission yes I love him I love the Messenger of Allah and one of the things that the Messenger of Allah taught us is that if you love somebody you are supposed to admit your love of them if you love somebody for the sake of Allah, you're supposed to tell them, I love you for Allah. And then the Prophet taught us to respond with, uh, or or May Allah love the one, love you, may the one for whose sake you love me love you. May the, lo- may the one for whose sake you love me love you. So it's, it's something from the Sunnah of the Prophet is to express that love for someone else. Uh, part of what's interesting about this, I think, is that that is not something that was a societal norm. Okay? So always remember, this is the time of the Prophet and these are very, very tough people. You know, we have that other story that's come up a couple times now of the time when, you know, someone uh, came to the Prophet and they told him, you know, I have ten sons and I, I, don't, I don't hug any of them. Like, that's not what I do. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, that if you don't show mercy, you won't be shown mercy. That you should be nice to your children. But this is the people that he was dealing with. They're very, very tough, strong people. And so when the Prophet ﷺ is telling them, you know, if you love someone, you should tell them. It's not really a norm. Uh, and I would venture to say that even in American culture, and many Muslim cultures up to today, it's not something that's a norm. Uh, and I, you know, like on, on a personal level, I still get very uncomfortable a lot of times. And I'm like, you know what, I actually love this person. But man, it's uncomfortable to say that. But it's the statement of the Prophet. So I said, I'm like, you have to force yourself to do it. The Prophet told you to do it, you have to do it. So then you just say it, right? But it's still uncomfortable. It's not something that's culturally normal uh, for us. And it's not something that was societally and culturally normal for the Prophet. Either. And I think that that's an important point is that one of the things that's being lost, I, I, I think that, you know, trajectories of understandings of faith and so on, they go through cycles. So we went through a cycle of a very not America-oriented Islam. This was before. A very not America-oriented Islam. So then the repercussion of that is a very America-oriented Islam. But see, what happens when you have a not America-oriented Islam is that everyone is concerned about text. So what does Islam say? What did the Prophet say? What did the Qur'an say? And they want to make that their foundation and then whatever else comes afterwards, whatever. Right? But now what happens is you swing the other way. And then people assume that the text actually doesn't have... Rather than allowing the text to inform our understanding of life and faith and everything else, we default to culture. And then if we find something from the faith, we might accept it, we might not, depending on how we feel about that particular issue, which can become very, very problematic. And so when you look at this, the, the Prophet ﷺ was not, you know, 
what he brought did not have to be culturally acceptable. It's, it's not a condition. It's not a condition that what Allah and His Messenger tell us to do is culturally acceptable. One of the great, one of the great, great examples of this in the early message is when Khadija radiallahu anha takes the Prophet to see Waraqa ibn Nufa after the beginning of the revelation. Right? So the beginning of the revelation comes. Khadija, you know, the Prophet is worried that maybe he might be possessed by jinn, he might have any other number of issues. So Khadija says, you know what, let's go talk to Waraqa. Waraqa is an old man who has knowledge of previous scriptures and so on and so forth, so we want to get his opinion. So they go to Waraqa and they tell him what happened. He says, this is the same angel that came to Musa This is the same one. And you are a messenger for this nation. And then he says, I wish that I was young again so that I could support you when your people drive you out. Okay, so the important thing here is that Waraqa tells him, I wish I was young again so that I could support you when your people drive you out. And the Prophet Wasallam says, Awa <laughs> like, they're, they're going to they're gonna drive me out. They're, they're, my people are going to do that to me? He's surprised because he's popular. For all intensive purposes, the Prophet Wasallam and his wife are popular in Mecca. And now he's surprised that he's going to be driven out. And Waraqa tells him that nobody came with what you came with, except that his people drove him out. So what is he telling him? doesn't have to be societally acceptable. You may be already popular. You're going to have to do things that may not be popular. That's okay. You're the messenger of God. You're not the messenger of a particular culture or worldview that is linked to a, a place or time. You are the messenger of God. You deliver your message. So this is something that we, we see here, that the Prophet ﷺ is telling us to admit to love of others, even if that's something that might be a little bit uncomfortable. Now, of course, this admitted love is a love that is permissible. It should go without saying. <laughs> it should go without saying, but it doesn't go without saying. So the admitted love, like we said, it has places where it should be. And when it's in the proper place, then it's something that's supposed to be admitted. Um, but like everything in Islam that is not permissible, if it is not permissible and you are struggling with it, which is entirely possible, someone could be struggling with being uh, having a feeling of love for someone that is not someone that they should be having that feeling for at any given particular time or place. And if that is the case, then as with everything that is displeasing to Allah and His Messenger, the, the, the way of Islam is to not expose it. Which is again something that is against sometimes the culture that we live in culture that we live in is like you tell everyone everything at all times because you don't want to be a hypocrite, quote-unquote. So if you do something that's displeasing to Allah, you don't tell people. You don't have to tell people. You don't have to go publicize it. You don't have to put it online. You don't have to do any of that. And actually, uh, the Prophet ﷺ talks about how this is displeasing to Allah. And he, he expressed wonderment about people who do this. You know, someone who they go at nighttime and they commit a sin and Allah covers it up for them. And they come in the morning and they take the cover off and they tell everyone about it. Say, what is wrong with these people? What is, it doesn't make sense. So the love has to be in the right place. And one of the evidences of that is, again, as we've talked about before, is one of the evidences of the love being in the right place and the, the love being appropriate is in one's actions. It is in one's actions. And one of the great stories in this regard is the story of Uwais and Qarni. As uh, we mentioned, that Uwais al-Qarni was from the greatest of the he was the greatest of the Tabi'in, 
according to the statement of the Prophet وسلم, he was khayr al-tabi'in he was the best of the tabi'in and when you think about that, it's a big statement because you have some really major figures amongst the tabi'in well you see why Uwais al-Qarni was so special so Uwais al-Qarni was you know, a young man uh, in his home taking care of his mother and when he was young his mother lost her vision uh, just for the record, there are many, many narrations about this story. So, inevitably, you choose one that might have other pieces. Other people might be aware of other ones. They have varying levels of authenticity and so on. So, uh, we take the general theme of the story. And try not to get too caught up in the details, but take the general theme. So, he was young and his mother lost her vision. And uh, he, the, the father died. So the father died when he was a young child and his mother lost her vision uh, when he was in his teens and so the responsibilities to move her around and to help her and do all this kind of stuff fell on him. So it's said that one night he was carrying a candle and he was helping his mother move around the house and so on and then the candle went out and he couldn't see anything. Yeah, so it's in the middle of the night, you don't have electricity, he's helping his mother to move around with the candle, the candle goes out, he doesn't see anything. So what happened? What do you think happened? His mother started leading him. It's the same for her. <laughs> it's a candle or no candle, it's the same for her. So she started to lead him. And that really made him think. Like, about lightness and darkness and, and seeing and not seeing and, you know, understanding and how, all of these type of things. And the next day he bumped into a Muslim who was in Yemen to spread Islam. So Uwais al-Qarni is in Yemen. And he bumps into a Muslim who's in Yemen to spread Islam. And he stopped the guy and he asked him to tell him something about the Qur'an that the Prophet ﷺ had brought. And so he recited him a verse from Surah An-Nur. And he for whom Allah has not appointed light, for him there is no light. The one whom Allah has not given light, for that person there is no light. So this obviously then connected and he really hit home. And uh, he told him, tell me more about what the Prophet ﷺ has said and, and so on. Uh, the man noticed that Uwais was poor, so he chose a hadith that basically where the Prophet ﷺ taught about the, talked about the merits of those who are struggling with, uh, with poverty and so on. So the man, after he heard this hadith, he took his shahada. And then the question comes up, is he going to go see the Prophet ﷺ or not? I mean, he's, the Prophet ﷺ is still alive, and he's a young man, and he's accepted Islam. Is he going to see the Prophet ﷺ or not? But he decided he can't leave his mother. Right? Because she's there, there's no father, there's no husband, and she's blind, and she needs him. And some people said, you know, neighbors or whoever can take care of her. And they said, no, he said, no, this is his responsibility, he's going to take care of uh, his, his mother. Um, and so he didn't end up going to Medina to see the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ actually passed away. Okay, the Prophet ﷺ passed away. So this is, of course, a big deal. So when the Prophet ﷺ later on is referring, as we come to that, he's referring to this person, that this person was the best of the tabi'in, this person actually would have been a sahabi. This is a big deal. To be a tabi'i versus a sahabi, to be a follower versus a companion of the Prophet ﷺ is a big deal. To see the Prophet ﷺ in his life is a big deal. But rather he stayed behind with his mom to take care of his responsibility, rather than to do what was a major thing to do and so later on Umar ibn Khattab عنه, he becomes the Khalifa 
Prophet mm-hmm. passes away, Abu Bakr passes away, Umar ibn Khattab becomes the Khalifa, and he would go around during Hajj and he would call out the name Uwais. He would just go on Hajj and he's calling out the name Uwais, looking for this person named Uwais. Is there anyone named Uwais? Whenever the people would come from Yemen, he would ask them, Is there someone named Uwais from amongst you? And year after year, he would do, he would do this. Until one year, uh, on this, on, and this, he would do this in Arafat, you know, like on the main day of Hajj, because everyone's in Arafat. Then he would go on the mountain of Arafat and he would start asking, you know, where is Uwais? Is there anyone, is there Uwais here? And uh, finally, amongst the people of Yemen, someone asked him, um, you know, he said, there's Uwais. They said, yeah, but there's this guy named Uwais, but he's with us and he's really inconsequential. Nobody cares about him. He's very poor. He takes care of our animals. Like, he's not, that's why we didn't even mention it to you, because who, who is this man, you know? Uh, and, and so Umar ibn Khattab, when he finds out who he was, um, he, he, he goes to, to this person uh, and he asks, is, is, the, is, the, is the mother living of this person? They say, yes. He says, it's not Uwais al Qadmi. It's not the person we're actually looking for because this Uwais will never leave his mother. But eventually he finds Uwais and they go to him. Uh, and Omar and goes to him with Ali radiallahu anhu. You know, and he asked him, uh, in different narrations they say different things. You know, is your mother here? He said, no. He says, okay. He says, what is your name? And one of them, they go up to him and ask him, what is your name? He says, my name is Abdullah. My name is Abdullah. He says, you know, and they say, we know that you're Abdullah. Everyone is Ibadullah. Like, we already know that. Everyone is Abdullah, technically. But what is the name that your mother gave you? He says, my mother gave me the name Uwais. He says, show us, like, this area on your body that's supposed to have this mark because one of the things that Prophet Sallallahu had told Omar was that there's a person who's going to come from this place his name is Uwais he used to have leprosy he made dua to Allah Allah got rid of his leprosy except for a small mark that remained in this particular place so Omar is like let me see this place on your body I want to see if you're the person so it turns out that he's him and he didn't know who are these people asking him this question um, and Uwais did not know, so he asked them, "Who are you?" He said, "This is Omar ibn Khattab. This is Ali ibn Abi Talib. This is Omar ibn Khattab, right?" So he's obviously this is Amir al-Mu'minin, and this is the relative of the Prophet. So I send them, and it was Ali who was the man in Yemen that Uwais initially took the shahada with, because Ali was one of the people the Prophet so I send them sent to Yemen. So they start asking him these questions, and then they tell him basically what the story is. The story is that the Prophet so I send them had told Omar. If you can find the best of the Tabi'een is Uwais and Qarni. And if you can find Uwais, ask Uwais to ask Allah's forgiveness for you. Go to him and ask him to make dua that Allah forgives you because his dua is answered. This is why he's whatever he makes dua for, his dua is answered. And so he went to him and they asked him to ask forgiveness for him and then they asked him, Where do you want to go? He said, I want to go to Kufa. And Omar told him, Can I write a letter for you? That way you'll be taken care of when you go there. And he told him, no, I don't want to do that. Just like, leave me to be unknown. I go to Kufa. Nobody needs to know who I am. I just live my life in solitude, worship Allah, leave me alone, type thing. So he went. And uh, that, you know, that was the, he remained like more or less unknown until some people figured out who he was and different stories and so on. But the point is here that the love has to be in the right place. 
even the love for the Prophet is a love that's tempered by love of Allah. So even in this like most important place of love, love for the Prophet for sure Uwais and Qarni loved the Prophet for sure he wanted to see him, for sure he wanted to meet him, and still I have a responsibility to my mother. I'm not going to go see the Messenger of Allah and he was very concerned about worshipping Allah not about people, not about anything else I just want to be with Allah and so this is someone who the Prophet then later on referred to as uh, someone who their dua is answered their dua is answered so it's a very, very high um, position to be in so this is a waste of qarni another evidence of the love of somebody is that you don't talk bad about them and that you defend their honor. So if you have a true and honest love that's correct, then you'll defend that person, you won't talk bad about them, you'll defend their honor and so on. And one of the places you see this in the life of the Prophet is actually with his mother. Um, that you see some. You see with the, the mother of the Prophet that you know when the Prophet was sent to be with Hanima Sa'diya sent to be in the, uh, the desert areas to live with the Bedouins to become stronger in his body and better in his language and so on and she went because hmm? oh, I know you want to go outside so it'll be okay for 15 minutes yeah. inshallah. Um, so the, he gets sent out to this desert area and of course Halima gets a lot of blessings in her life to make the story short but she goes with the Prophet them. they're poor, they don't have anything. As soon as they take the Prophet them with them, their animals start to produce milk, they start to have complete change of fortune. So when it comes time for her to bring the Prophet them back to Amina, then they, they basically beg Amina to keep the Prophet them for longer. Like, okay, our initial term is over, but can we renew our contract and like continue a little bit longer and keep him with us a little bit longer? It will be good for him and all of this stuff. They really push her and she agrees. Shortly after that is when the incident of the splitting of the Prophet Sallallahu chest occurred. You know, this incident where the angels came and they split his chest and they took out his heart and they, they, they took out some black from his heart. And there's any number of ways that you can uh, look at that. But, but that, that happened and then they were afraid that maybe something else would happen. So they took the Prophet Sallallahu back to Aminah, to his mother. And she's very smart. Right, like they brought him back and they weren't going to tell her what happened and they just kind of said like you know what we're good <laughs> you can have him back now and she said you know you really pushed hard so that you can take him again and now you're bringing him back there has to be a reason tell me what the reason is I'm his mother I need to know so they tell her the story and then afterwards what she tells them is she defends the Prophet something was very beautiful subhanAllah. she says you know you're worried about him, you think something will happen to him You think there might be some issue with the jinn Or there might be whatever she, she said, let me tell you about my son So when I was pregnant with my son I didn't experience the things that people normally experience in pregnancy When I was pregnant with my son I would see visions that light has filled All of these distant places Coming out of my womb And there's light that's filling distant lands When I was pregnant with my son And I gave birth to my son I didn't have any of the pains of birth. And when I gave birth to my son, then he was just, you know, so she starts talking about her son, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. She defends him. 
So there's this idea of defending the honor of someone uh, if you love them. It's also part of it. So again, this verse is, May you be spared my state. I cannot hide my secret from my detractors. My sickness will never leave me. And the big thing here is the admission of love. That we should admit love. And there should be evidence to that love. Uh, verse number thir- number 11 uh, he says, "Mahadun yin nusha, walakin lastu asmaruhum inna muhibba an arzani fi salami." That you have offered me sincere advice, but I don't hear it, because the lover is deaf to all of his all of his reproachers. You know, so you gave me sincere advice, but I'm just not hearing it because I'm so in love with the Prophet them that I can't hear the advice of anyone else. This is just the way that it is. And so here, obviously, in this verse, you have a, a touch on this very important concept of nasiha. Nasiha is really one of the central concepts of Islam. and so, so important. Uh, so, so important to a healthy life of Islam as a community and as individuals. So the Prophet wasallam, as everyone knows, said, Ad-Deenun Nasiha, that the deen is nasiha, that this entire way of Islam that we have, it's based on nasiha. And so what is nasiha? And it's not just advice. It's like advice and sincerity all kind of wrapped together. So depending on context, it's, it's sincere advice, but it's also sincerity, but it's also advice, but it's also, you know, the origin of the word actually comes from threading a, a uh, threading thread through the eye of a needle. When you have an eye, you know, has anyone ever done this? People don't do this stuff anymore. But definitely, probably people who are a little bit older or maybe have uh, diverse backgrounds. I don't think people who are very young deal with these things anymore. But if you ever try to thread a needle, it's very difficult. Uh, especially if you have thread that's not cooperating. <laughs> and you're trying to get it through the eye of the needle. And it's very, it's tough, right? This is really what Nasiha is about. Giving nasiha properly and with all of the conditions is like threading a needle. It's very, very difficult. To give proper advice that's really sincere is putting it through uh, that hole, the eye, and it's very delicate. And so this nasiha has etiquettes. It has etiquettes. One of the first and most important etiquettes that I've mentioned before is you connect before you correct. Connect before you correct. First, interactions with anybody should never be interactions that are based on correcting. Unless there's very few exceptions to that. But an exception to that would be, for example, if that's why someone's coming to you. Like maybe you're in a very high elevated position of advice and guidance and so on, and someone is specifically coming to you to get advice on how to, like, how to better themselves. Then they're coming to you and they're asking you for it. So this is something different. Still, there's delicacy, but it's generally you connect before you correct. Number two is that you make sure it's something that's worth correcting. And this is also an area that is usually not paid attention to. (laughs) So, for example, if it is an area that's differed upon in Islamic law, it is not something that you correct. So if you're going to correct it, you better make sure that it's agreed that you can't do it. So for example, there's something that, and I can't even remember the the answer to the question, but every now and then you go into the masjid and you see people who are praying while sitting on chairs, right? And some of them, they kind of like air sujood. They put their hands down on the air 
and they, they kind of like pretend like they're making sujood on the floor, but their hand is down like this. I personally don't know of like my under so my understanding of the Hanafi school is that we don't do that. I can say that for sure, but I don't know what the other schools say. So I see people do this all the time, and I always think to myself, you know what, I should look that up, because I don't know where that comes from. But I don't say anything to them, because I don't know. I don't know where they might... There could be any number of opinions that I don't know about. So there's no reason for me to go and talk to them about that, that issue, right? So this is one of very many things. But this happens all the time in our community. So if you study something and you learn it, learn it for yourself first. Then, next step is you brought into all of the possible of opinions before you branch out into correcting someone else. Uh, so make sure that it's something that's actually worth correcting, in the sense that you should be correcting it. And on top of it, that it's worth correcting. That the benefit is going to outweigh the harm. That the benefit... Come on in. <laughs> Feel comfortable to come in. Uh, the benefit should outweigh the harm. She shouldn't be correcting someone in a way that is going to lead more to more harm than benefit. So this is another condition. Another condition for correctly um, correcting someone is that you make sure that your your giving of nasiha is not about you. Okay, you make sure. You make sure that your nasiha is not about you. It's a very important condition as well. Again, a lot of times when people give nasiha, their reason for giving nasiha actually is that something is bothering them and they want to get it off their chest. But that's the wrong reason to give it. should be giving it out of, number. the next one, is that you're seeking the welfare of the other party. That's why you're giving it. It's not because you want to feel better. You know? It's not just like, oh, I want to say it and I'm done with it. And I don't care if the person actually changes. That's wrong. It should be that you're, the actual welfare of the other person is being kept in mind. And so the hadith goes on to say that this nasiha is لِلَّهِ وَلِرَسُولِهِ وَلِكِتَابِهِ وَلِأَئِمَّةِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ وَلِعَامَتِهِمْ That this nasiha, this advice and sincerity that we have, the hadith says that it goes to Allah. And it goes to the Messenger of Allah, and it goes to the Book of Allah, and it goes to the leaders of the Muslims, and it goes to the generality of the Muslims. These are all the places where this advice and sincerity is supposed to be. And that's why I said when we, we translate it as advice, it poses a problem. Because you're like, how can I give advice to Allah? If the hadith says that the nasiha is to Allah and His Messenger, how do I give advice to Allah? I can't give advice to Allah. You can't, obviously, but you can be sincere to Allah. So they say to have nasiha to Allah is to worship Him and to not associate partners with Him and to submit to Him. To have nasiha to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is to follow His way and to encourage others to follow His way and to learn about Him and to love Him and so on. To have the same thing with the Book of Allah. To stop with the, guide, with the limits of the Book of Allah is to have nasiha to the Book of Allah and so on. But then when it comes to a'immat al-Muslimin, now you have another meaning of the word. So when you have the leaders of the Muslims, what does that mean? It means you give advice to them. You, you encourage them, you correct them. And so again, now, remember what I said before. Because this is a plague that is affecting our communities. That if we do not, first of all, you have to accept that giving advice is part of Islam. 
Second thing is that you give advice with certain conditions. You give advice wanting general benefit and construction, not destruction. So again, usually the way that things go now is I'm giving advice to the leaders of the Muslims. So I'm going to go online, I'm going to post this like debacle, say all of these things, Many of, maybe they're founded, maybe they're not founded, maybe they're, whatever it might be, and this is my advice to the Muslims. Now, if that was your last resort, you tried everything else, you know, you talked to the person, you went to them and all that kind of stuff. But if you don't actually speak to them, because another condition that I forgot to mention is that it should be private. You give advice privately in Islam, you don't make a public humiliation out of it. So it's a private advice. So if you haven't gone to the person and spoken to them, you haven't tried to talk to them about it, there's no reason to make a public mess out of it. But a lot of times we go immediately when we make public messes. So there's an issue then in the heart that it's not being dealt with properly. Uh, which is not to say that it can never become public. Sometimes things become public for any number of different reasons. Maybe that proper, the other avenues aren't working, or maybe there's a general harm to the community that needs to be averted or whatever it might be. But there's a way that these things should, should occur. Uh, another part of this is that, and then it goes also, like I said, not only to the leaders of the Muslims, to all of the Muslims. This is part of our faith. Part of our faith is that we encourage each other. Part of our faith is that we are there for each other, that we remind each other uh, of, of different things. And so, another thing that's mentioned here is that you gave me good advice, but I didn't hear the advice. I was deaf to it. Right? He says, I was deaf to the advice because my love was so deep. And outside of the context of like where it is right in that context being deaf to the advice is fine because it's about how deeply the love for the Prophet is but in general being deaf to advice is a major issue being deaf to advice is a major major spiritual issue because if you remember what we talked about in terms of arrogance that the Prophet defined arrogance not as wanting to have nice clothes or anything like that but he defined arrogance as rejecting the truth and looking down on people. So what is rejecting the truth? Basically it means you're doing something and someone comes to you and they say, you know, this is not what you should be doing and so on. You say, you reject it. I'm deaf to the advice. So to be deaf to the advice is a very, very serious problem because it can be a sign of arrogance. It can also be, uh, it also just means that you're going to have a, a difficult time in life. I mean, if you can't take advice from anyone and you're going to have to figure out everything yourself, it's not a good place to be in because you're going to make a whole lot of mistakes and you, your nefs is going to be being fed all of the time you know, it's, it's getting bigger and bigger it's turning into this horrible thing and so part of this, the very very direct issue with our community, especially young people right now <laughs> and I don't know if this might upset some people but I think that we have to fight the culture of do not judge me and I don't mean do not judge me in the good way. There is a good side of this. The good side of this is that people are just being belligerent with advice and not fulfilling the conditions and assuming bad of other people. And in that realm, sure, don't judge me. But if don't judge me extends to like everything, you know, you know, like you go up to the brother, you tell him, you know, brother, I've known you for a long time. You're involved in a lot of things, and it's very good the stuff that you're doing. But I know that you only pray four times a day. And in Islam, we pray five times a day. You know, you should try to pray five times a day. So you don't judge me. 
Brother, why are you judging me? So I'm not judging you, I'm just telling you that we have five obligatory, I'm reminding you that we have five obligatory prayers in Islam. And I'm here to help you and support you in any way that I can. Do you want me to call you at Fajr? Can, I, can we carpool together? Anything we can do, I'm here for you. Brother, you're judging me, leave me alone. This is where it gets. Like, this is now, this is something that's totally. You need people to check you sometimes. <laughs> In the end, we need people to check us sometimes. They just need to be people that we love and we trust. And that's what the issue is. That the, and, and all of these verses before that are about love. So the love and the trust is there. Then you can have relationships where. Uh, I know you will probably want to add something. Yeah, it's going to be Oscar time right now, so you should add it. Okay. Yeah, just from that. There's obviously a balance in this, and I know that you want to do that. So there's, it was interesting today, on the way here, we were um, reading this small section in Riyadh al-Salihin about Nasiha, and one of the, it only mentions three narrations of the Prophet, and the third one that's mentioned is, um, uh, you do not truly believe, or he does not truly believe who does not love for his brother or sister what he loves for himself. Um, and that hadith is in the section on Nasiha. So I think it's a really interesting hadith for Imam Nawawi to have included in this section because um, when you think, like, nasiha meaning sincerity, so the advice is coming from a place of sincerity, but it's also that, like, the way that you give the advice is the way that you wish someone would give advice to you, right? And then, um, you know, like, I think um, Sayyid Hawa, he talks about this a little bit in Fiskit um, al-Anfus, which he takes a lot from Imam Ghazali, so I don't know if it's from him or Imam Ghazali, but he says, um, when you uh, see someone that's doing something that's problematic, um, you situ before you say anything to them, situate yourself in the place of their sin and think about how you would want someone to sort of like lift you out of that place. And um, you know, like I think that's really interesting because it's very hard sometimes to empathize at any level with someone who's doing something that's frustrating to us. You know, or bothersome to us, or problematic. But then, okay, like now I have to literally try to put myself in this person's shoes. Imagine I'm the one doing this. What would I need for someone to help? For me to like, for, for, to, for me to be open enough to benefit from someone's advice. You know, in, if I was in that same scenario, and that's a really hard thing for people to do because we, when, when, when we see problems on the outside, we like to be like, I have nothing to do with that. You know, but to like actually like imagine that. Okay, Matt, let's try to. Let's try, let me see if I can put myself there, you know. And then, what would someone, what would I want someone to say to me so that I could come out of this? I think kind of shifts the style of how we would approach one another, um, and it's really hard to do. Like I'll, I've tried it before, and I'm like, I just can't, you know. Like some of the stuff that we find frustrating is so hard to empathize with at any level. But I think, you know, it just brings to mind that like it's sincerely both in. Sincerity, both in like the intent of what you're trying to do, but also even in, in how you're trying to do it. Yeah. I want to start this. Let's finish this because this is the last verse. Verse 12 is the last verse in the first section of the poem. So the first section of the poem is that love stuff. And the second section of the poem is on issues related to the soul and the nefs uh, and, and so on. And so we want to finish this up so we can start next time. Uh, the thing I was going to say that's very interesting was that you know, I had all this talk about advice and accepting advice and all of this kind of stuff. And then when we broke for prayer, I went to my wife and she gave me advice about something. And my first, re my first reaction was to want to resist it. <laughs> it was just an amazing thing. 
human beings are just an amazing thing. So, it's a lot of work to be done. So, verse 12. إِنِّ اتَّهَمْتُ نَصِيحَ الشَّيْبِ فِي عَذَلٍ وَالشَّيْبُ أَبْعَدُ فِي نُسْحٍ عَنِ التُّهَمِ Which means, I suspect the counsel even of my own gray hairs, although their advice is far indeed from deception. So he's saying that even, you know, I, he's saying, that I, I, I suspect, I'm suspicious of the advice of everyone. You know, after he says to this person, I'm not accepting your advice, the accuser, then he says, I, I, I'm suspicious of everyone's advice. I'm even suspe- suspicious of the advice of my own gray hair. And my gray hair is not something that I should be doubting. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's, a very, it's a very clear indication of the passage of time. Um, and I, I think that there's... The main thing that I want to take from this is that... saying that I shouldn't suspect my gray hairs. And... That's obviously an analogy on, or, or, or a metaphor on the passage of time and attaining of wisdom over time and so on. And Islam has a very special place for the elderly. That is very important for us to think about and remember and, and consider is that age has a very important factor in Islam. Uh, even we were reading some hadith on the way over here. One of them was two brothers came to the Prophet them to tell him about an incident that happened. And they're two brothers, so you're not... Not imagining that one is extremely elderly and the other one is really young or something, but they're two brothers. And they came to the Prophet ﷺ and one of them started to speak. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, Kebir, Kebir, meaning start with the elder one. The elder brother should say it first, and then afterwards, if there's something to add, then the younger brother can add it. So there's an idea of age does have importance uh, in Islam. One of the beautiful things that I saw uh, one time when we went to Ta'lif that I saw. Ustad Usama Kanan do was that he would take, if someone who was older in the community came to the gathering, uh, he, he picked out like one, one, one of the brothers who was very much older and he forced him to sit in the front with him, like while he was presenting. So he's telling him, you're like an elder in our community, you've been around here for a long time and you've contributed in all these different ways and you should be sitting up here because you're, you're from that category. Uh, so elder, showing respect to those who are older is very much a part of Islam. And uh, one of the most powerful hadith in this regard, one of my very interesting hadith, is that the Prophet said, "Min ijlalillahi taala uh, muslim That from the glorifying of Allah is to show dev, um, reverence and respect to a uh, to a Muslim who has gray hair someone who has some years on them to respect them is to glorify Allah and and then the hadith continues as well as a person who has memorized the Quran and acts upon it and is not negligent of it and as well as a ruler who is just but the first part of it is that an elderly person there are a number of etiquettes in Islam for dealing with people who are older uh, but most of them are probably common sense like you don't speak over them but this is something that becomes very difficult with time as people get older and they're slower to talk or they don't understand things as quickly and so on and then you want to just kind of like rush it which is another one is that you don't rush them sometimes you don't rush people who are older you don't make them feel like they're dumb you don't make them feel like they're getting slow um, you don't walk in front of them you don't sit before them you uh, must be considerate and caring of their feelings caring for their feelings these things are very very important and people deserve it. 
when they when they get older they deserve it. So part of this also is that in Islam, we don't. And again, you know, talking about stuff that's culturally relevant in American culture, nobody wants to get old. It's like the worst thing. Nobody wants to get old. Oh, you look older. These people freak out. I'm old now. You're saying I'm old and all these things. SubhanAllah, actually, in the viewpoint of Islam, and in some, it's the opposite. <laughs> and in, in many, in some Muslim countries, you would see this. For sure, we saw this in Muslim majority countries, you would see this. So, we saw this in Egypt, for example. Um, but, but you don't run from aging in Islam. Like, aging is actually, that's where you gain your wisdom, it's where you gain your insight, it's where you gain. Um, Experience in life is is through aging, and and so it'd be funny in Egypt. Like people are almost rushing. So if you if eventually if you get old enough, you're a hag, right? Or you're a hagga. You're in this category of uh, older people, and you would see people are basically rushing to be part of that category. So they they start walking in a certain way, or they start speaking in a certain way that's that's considered to be part of that type of behavior. But they just do it early because there's a certain like respect and deference that comes with that. And they can get away with stuff that nobody else can get away with because, you know, they're older. So they can say things to you that nobody else is allowed to say and they get to go first and like all this kind of stuff. So they're just like, you know, start drinking tea and talking in a certain way because they want to be older. They want, it's like an honor to be from the older category. It's completely opposite, right? And so, so this is important. One of the things you should think about, one of the things to think about in this regard uh, say you go to like a Jummah prayer. Uh, I think it's a good etiquette if you go to a Jummah prayer, after Jummah, look around and find the older people and go say salam to them. Ask them for their dua. Go say salam to them. Ask them for their dua. Say salam alaikum, auntie, uncle, whoever, haq, whatever, depending on which nationality you're dealing with. Tell them, can, I, can you make dua for me? How are you? Do you need anything? Just have concern. Uh, so this is it's very, very important and it's fascinating to see that. It shouldn't be... I mean, obviously it's foolishness to try to escape aging in the first place. But part of this is that when you age, that's something that's natural and something that should be embraced and um, and very, very much a part of Islam to respect people when they age and uh, that they have, you know, there's things to learn from them, there's experiences to gain, that their counsel should be sought. They might not always understand. Especially if people are immigrants or they're not, maybe they're out of their context. They might not understand exactly what you're saying, but there's still, there's blessings and there's, there's benefits to seeking the advice of people who are older. As the Prophet said, You know, there's blessings in the elderly amongst you. You seek their advice, you seek their counsel, you spend time with them, try to respect them, try to serve them. Uh, it was interesting, someone said to me the other day, they're like, you know, we really need to push our younger Muslims to be volunteering in hospitals and to be volunteering in elderly homes and all of this kind of stuff. And I was thinking to myself, subhanAllah, you know, like those are very primary things in Islam. So if you want to volunteer in a good place, a good place to volunteer is an elderly home. You get to serve the elderly. It just doesn't get much better than that. A good place to volunteer is in a hospital. So you're visiting, basically you're visiting sick people all day. Something is very important in Islam, right? So there's, there's these core values in Islam that, that are, give us great opportunities to contribute to society and to serve others. Uh, this should be, should be reflected upon. So with that, we end this section 
on loving the Prophet on love, on all of these type of things. And I'll give you one last thing as the closer. Is that the Prophet taught us that the one who sees him in a dream has actually seen him. So you can see, we can see the Prophet in dreams. And um, he said, whoever sees me in a dream has indeed seen me, for, for Satan cannot imitate me. So then one of the questions becomes, how do we know if we've seen the Prophet in a dream or not, if we don't know what he looks like? Yes? In a dream. Oh, in a dream. In a dream. Not, I'm not talking about when you're awake. That's a different question. But when you're in a dream, you see him in your dream. So, you know, you're, you're in your own dream, and you see the Prophet's eyes on him. So, how do we know if we see him if we don't know what he looks like? This is the first one. So, Ummabad, radiallahu anha, one of the companions of the Prophet's eyes on him, she gave a very beautiful description of the Prophet. Uh, what's interesting about it is that she gives this description. She gives this description of the Prophet to her husband, who's asking about this man who came when he was not home, <laughs> and got some like uh, was him and Abu Bakr were there, and they passed through in the time of the Hijra, and they were trying to look for some food, and then Umm Abid sees the Messenger of Allah send them, and then her husband comes home and tells him tells her to describe him to him. So this is what she said: I saw a man who was handsome of glowing countenance and of good proportions, with neither a large stomach nor a small head. He is smart of appearance with balanced features, deep black eyes and long eyelashes. His voice is not coarse. He has a long neck, a full rounded beard, and thick eyebrows that meet each other. When he is silent, he is stately and composed. In another narration it says that they come very close to each other, but there's a small line between the eyebrows. So, there's different. Uh, when he is silent, he is stately and composed, and we, when he speaks, his appearance is impressive. He is the most beautiful and striking man from a distance, and the best and most beautiful from close up. He is well-spoken, clear in what he says, saying neither too much nor too little, his words flowing forth like a perfect string of pearls. He is neither too small nor overly short, a stately man in the company of two other stately men, and he is the most prominent among them, and the most well-respected. He has companions who surround him. If he speaks, they listen to him. And if he commands, they hasten to fulfill his command. He is well-served and attended, though he is neither stern nor argumentative. So this is a description. The last point is, then we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to see the Prophet in our dreams and to have that honor. And so I close with the story that I heard one time, I don't know if it's true or not, about uh, a sheikh and his student. And the student wanted to see the Prophet ﷺ in his dreams. And he came to the sheikh and he complained that he hasn't seen the Prophet ﷺ in his dreams. And he asked him, how, am I, how can I see the Prophet ﷺ in my dream? So the sheikh told him, I'll give you the secret, just have to come over for dinner tonight. And he came over for dinner and the sheikh fed him a lot of very salty food. And he didn't give him any water. Okay, lots of salty food, no water. And he told the student, if you want to see the Prophet ﷺ in your dream tonight, then you go home, don't talk to anyone, don't drink any water, just go home and go to sleep. So, and come back to me tomorrow and tell me what happened. So he goes home and he goes to sleep, 
And what do you think happened? The only thing that he saw in his dream was water. <laughs> Lots of water. Waterfalls and rivers and cups of water and ice and all kinds of other things, right? So he comes back to the Sheikh in the morning. He tells the Sheikh, he said, Yo, Sheikh. So he said, did you see him in your dream? He said, no. He said, what did you see in your dream? He said, I saw a lot of water. He said, what do you, what, what, do you get the point? When you go to sleep at night, what is it that you were thinking about? You're thinking about water. Because you were thirsty and you did all of these type of things. So then what you saw in your dream is what you were thinking about. So if your heart and your mind is occupied with the remembrance of Allah, if your heart and your mind is occupied with the remembrance of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, then eventually you'll see him in your dreams. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us that gift. Amin wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alayhi wa sallam.